0: Hello, hello, and welcome back. Keep coming back, y'all. So each episode, we take whatever is happening in the political moment and try to extract some deeper understanding of the forces at work. This week, there was a town hall-style debate on separate, socially distant networks. Savannah Guthrie on NBC asked the president of the United States about... His Twitter behaviors. Wah, wah. And this should tell you something about the emotional age of the president that his phone privileges have to be examined. Just think of how old you were when your parents <laughs> had to have those kinds of conversations with you. Or if you're a parent, what age were your kids when you had to talk with them about their phone behaviors? I really long for the day that whomever is in office, whichever party is in power, that the emotional age of the president be closer to their chronologic age. The severe stuntedness is just a red flag for pathology, not just in Trump, but in all of us. Typically, as people age, we change, we mature, we learn, we grow, so... If that's not present, that means something is wrong, you know? The tyranny of Trumpism, the way he holds people hostage with his infantile rage. It's bad for the party, certainly, and bad for democracy. Remember, democracies tend to be happier than non-democracies, and ours could be a little happier. I really hope we learn from this and do not repeat it either in our politics or in our personal lives. So meanwhile, back at the debate, Savannah asked Trump about QAnon and other conspiracy theories that are touted and spread on social media. You may recall from previous episodes that this is a guy that reflexively devalues anyone and anything he comes in contact with because that's what narcissists do. They devalue. They devalue others and exalt themselves, devalue and exalt, over and over. But he can't very well devalue or disavow the conspiracy spreaders because they make up a substantial portion of his supporters and are a reflection of him and his grandeur. So she asks him, Why did you send to 87 million followers that Joe Biden orchestrated Navy SEAL Team 6 killed in order to cover up the fake death of Osama bin Laden. There's some backstory here. Apparently, Navy SEAL Team 6 is alive and well, and Osama bin Laden is not fake dead, but real dead. Oops. So she asks him, why tweet this? And he says, and I quote, It was a retweet. It was a retweet. Wow. That's an amazing style of denial. I hadn't heard that one before. We're going to be talking today about styles of denial, and I'm going to add that one to the list. Thank you, Mr. President. So after he sets the record straight that it wasn't a tweet, it was a retweet, Savannah says to him, and I quote, you're the president. You're not someone's crazy uncle who can just retweet whatever. And then I thought about best-selling author, psychologist, and niece of Donald Trump, Mary Trump, because he really is her crazy uncle. She wrote a book about it. It's called Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man where she, as both niece and therapist, tries to explain how truly sick he is. It has sold millions and millions of copies since July, so we shall see if that can be compelling here. My hope for our nation is that we can build an emotionally literate electorate who can identify harmful pathology when they see it. No matter whose team it's on, this shouldn't be a political issue. People should be able to identify threats in their environment. That, as a society, we're emotionally illiterate and not able to read into this, not able to integrate what we're seeing, that we're all amped up all the time, distracted with endless alerts and interfaces on our phones, it makes it very hard for our nervous systems to discern an actual threat rising above all that noise. A malignancy like Trump could theoretically be spottable from a football field away. Imagine you're walking down a field and a bright orange colored man is approaching. That would get your attention. As we get closer, we start to see the fake hair, the fake teeth. The fake smile, the fake news, something, something should tip us off that he's a fake, a con, a creep at the very least. But in many cases, our brains do something allegedly on our behalf that makes us not see what is directly observable. Have you ever had that at the end of a relationship? After the denial wears off, you're like, How did I not see this? Well, these little favors our brains do for us come in various styles of denial, meant to keep us and our fragile egos feel intact. Notice, it's about feeling intact. It's not about growing. In fact, denial and growth are contraindicated and we have a whole host of denial styles from minimization, rationalization, blame, and most recently, denial by retweet to keep us nice and shielded from the incoming pains of the world. We'll be talking today with Dr. Gary Pearl, my mentor and psych hero. He originally taught me about styles of denial and all their magnificent glory. But before we get to that, Here's what I know about the ways the ego defense mechanism of denial is operating in our politics today. First off, humans could not function without a lot of denial on board. We're resilient but fragile little creatures with prehistoric fear about the world woven into our genetic code. We can get spooked pretty easily. Something like compartmentalization, for example, evolved with us as a style of denial, which allows us to block out most of the world and focus solely on our task. If we weren't able to compartmentalize, we'd be flooded all the time. We need our various styles of denial to function. Denial can be healthy for us. Part of growing our EQ is recognizing when denial is active, and navigating with consciousness and intelligence, not just reflex. Denial is often reflexive and immediate. We hear some horrible news and our denial says, no, it can't be. That allows us to only take in as much reality as we can handle. Denial allows us to titrate reality and is a real blessing in that way. There's plenty of good denial. But I want to bring into consciousness the shadow side of denial. When denial runs wild and is unchecked, we push something out of our minds, but because of the laws of physics, the pain is neither created nor destroyed, it is merely transferred. We all have the ability to block out data through various styles of denial. Our society trends toward blocking out data that does not agree with us, that threatens us, and that somehow serves our conscious and unconscious biases. It's not a super flattering picture of humankind, but this is where we all start. Luckily, our brains and neurology are plastic. We can always learn. We can always grow more aware just by checking in with ourselves. We can check our biases, check our styles of denial, Notice if you tend to minimize or tend to maximize. Notice if you tend toward rationalizations or justifications or blame. If you're a good compartmentalizer, remember to clean out the compartments occasionally because whatever you push out of your brain so it doesn't disturb you might very well be disturbing someone else. This is a relational approach in family therapy We may or may not be able to apply this at the macro level, but we can certainly begin to think relationally about our closest loved ones. And when we deny each other's pain on the macro or the micro through minimization or rationalization, the harms never get identified. They get denied. So the harms never recede. It's a vicious cycle we therapists like to break, and it's a central paradox in psychology that by looking at the very stuff we tend to bury, it can be transformed. And by pushing it down and ignoring it, it stays put forever. This has been studied at the molecular and atomic levels as well. In physics, it's called the observer effect, where the mere observation of a phenomenon inevitably changes that phenomenon. In quantum theory, there's a premise that by the very act of watching, the observer affects the observed reality. New innovations in transmission electron microscopes have shown this to be active at the atomic level. Just by looking at atoms, we affect them. Wow! And I see it every day in people. As soon as we actually look at some of our shadowy sides, they shift. And until we put our attention on our wounds, the pain never recedes. These days, one of the most commonly relied upon styles of denial is normalization. Here we are living in totally abnormal COVID conditions. So instead of fretting about constantly, we normalize it. We normalize the isolation, the restricted movement, the sense of fear and grief. Nearly eight months in, it's all so normal. Thanks, denial. But there's an obvious shadow side, which is that even though we've normalized it, the suffering hasn't receded. In fact, people are getting more desperate. The more our denial attempts to keep us safe, the more suffering goes on around us that we're denying. Vicious cycle. It affects all of us, but energy is top down and what happens in Trump's mind affects us all. His denial styles cause so much harm to those around him. Just read any of the books by any of the generals who have resigned or been fired or any of the Republican appointees who were forced to quit. They all report the same thing. Trump cannot be reasoned with and that he's not able to be reasoned with. That's because he's very delusional, and it's only our denial that blocks us from seeing this. This election season is actually a good time to shake off some of that denial and wake the fuck up, because currently, the quack theory of herd immunity is being embraced by this severely mentally ill, harmful man. As it's being fed to us, we somehow have to minimize the threat and deny the millions and millions of people who will die if that herd immunity strategy is allowed to endure. It's a potent example of how denying there's a problem makes us feel better in the moment, our fragile egos more intact, but does nothing to reduce the suffering. And in fact, the suffering increases. I hear a few other particular styles of denial operating in families these days. See if you recognize any of these in your circle. Maybe it'll help to put a name to what you're experiencing. There's the, yes, Trump is a bully, but we can ride his coattails and he can be our bully. That's a form of denial called magical thinking, because you have to magically imagine that a destructive force, like a tornado, will only be selectively destructive which is not true of tornadoes, that a blunt instrument like Trump will magically be precise and surgical. It's just not reality. It denies reality. Sometimes a loved one will say something like, sure, we don't like the way he acts, but think of all the unborn children we'll save. That's a tough one for me for a lot of reasons. But personal biases aside, in terms of styles of denial... By minimizing some information and maximizing other information, that distorts and in this way denies reality. Anyone can do it on any side. It's something to notice when we are minimizing or maximizing certain aspects. It's a tip-off that something is being denied. Then there's the there's no systemic racism bit, which is one of my favorite styles of denial. A very rare form of pure 100% nope, that's not happening. Fingers in ears, eyes wide shut, nope, nope, nope. It's very rare to have this kind of pure denial surface. Usually denial is operating more subtly, but in this particular moment in our country, denial at the macro level is operating to minimize and deny pain. By denying racism exists, any form of racism, it denies the pain of people who are being oppressed. And by denying it, minimizing it, rationalizing it, justifying it, or blaming, by using any of these styles of denial, the pain can never be seen, so it stays buried for as long as people can bear it until it explodes which is where we're at today, people have been enduring unequal treatment, unequal policing, unequal housing, unequal voting, unequal schooling, inequities and injustices at every level for generations. And it's painful. It's painful for black people, certainly. It's painful for those of us who love black people, And it's painful for people who love America and don't want to see that the land of the free isn't so free for all and never has been systemically. It's a painful reckoning, but vital to the overall health and well-being of our national family. We must look at this. We must listen to what oppressed people say about their oppression. And to the extent we feel pain from that, good, let it out. Let's heal the pain. But first, we got to shed some of that denial that makes it impossible to heal. There are so many styles of denial and so little time before the election. I hope it's clear that while no harm is ever consciously intended by our denial styles, Harm can be the result of our unchecked denial. No one has to be bad here. It's just how conscious we are of this ability to block out reality and how well we navigate it that determines our emotional intelligence. I am getting myself ready to have a difficult conversation with my dad, whom I love dearly and with whom I'm in a strained emotional relationship. In prep for that, we'll be talking today with my mentor, Dr. Gary Pearl, about styles of denial and hopefully get a little family therapy along the way. Hi, (laughs) Gare.
1: Hi, Irene. It's good to see you.
0: Okay. There's a lot that's coming up. I want to speak about like some of the, the rage, the expressions of injustice and mm-hmm. violation and oppression mm-hmm. and all the things that are coming up right now have ways of getting denied. Lots mm-hmm. and lots and lots of ways. Mm-hmm. Years ago, you gave us a worksheet called the Styles of Denial Worksheet. <laughs> <laughs> and I started on like whatever laptop I had back Then, and of course, things have advanced a trillion times since then. And I have no idea where that book is anymore. And I don't know where that worksheet is, but the contents of the worksheet, roughly, are emblazed in my memory forever. Tell me you have a working set of memory on this. And we're going to put together this worksheet and kind of give some examples and see how denial actually operates in people because I think it's something that, frankly, we all need to know a little bit more about.
1: By all means.
0: So here's the list that I have, and tell me if you have anything to add, and then we'll go through and start doing it. I got minimization, rationalization, blame, intellectualization. Occasionally, you get 100% puro-puro Colombian grade denial, (laughs) but that's rare. Right. And then there's denial by distraction, which is one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. And anything else that pops out?
1: That's pretty comprehensive. It really is. I, it's, I, a bunch. You know, it, it's a Yeah, it, re, it really is. And each of them can go by uh, one name or another, I think, uh, not especially attached to any particular way of understanding these things. But I think the main thing is kind of what you said about the Puro Colombian, there's actually not that much uh, total denial. You know, The classic place people started thinking about this was with addiction and something like drinking. You know, So if someone, the drinking is maybe out of control or starting to be out of control, they're rarely going to say, oh, I don't drink at all. Alcohol, what alcohol? No, this is not a problem in any way. Usually, we're all a little more onto ourselves than that. It exists, but it's kind of rare. But that's where the others start to have so much power. And really the most popular, you mentioned in the middle, but uh, sad to say, probably the most popular form or style of denial is blaming. You know, mm. It's like, I, I don't have a problem with my drinking. I have a problem with your nagging. You know, who wouldn't drink with a spouse like you? You know, if only you would do this or that differently, then there wouldn't be a problem around here. You know, that kind of thing. And it's amusing when we stand uh, back from it this way. But of course, in the real life situation, it's pretty ugly. It's a recipe for things escalating and conflicts that maybe originate out of love, like, hey, I'm worried about you, that kind of thing. Uh, They can turn very toxic into an awful lot of finger pointing and exercise in trying to assign blame. Blame itself is distracting. You mentioned distraction. Well, I mean, that's one fringe benefit of blaming is if you point the finger at someone else, it gets the light off of you and puts it on someone else. And their attention too will be, well, gee, maybe I have been nagging. Maybe I haven't been dealing with this right, which might be true, but it's to some degree beside the point.
0: Interesting. How do you, in terms of blame, how do you see this playing out right now in our culture? If you want to speak at that level, if you can, or if you don't, we can just move on.
1: No, I mean, I think it's a dynamic that takes us hostage. Once we're convinced that we're doing something, for instance, to protect ourselves, well, we have to go this far. It it may not be fully honest, but they're not being honest. So we have to exaggerate or maybe even lie a little bit. I think that the main point is that once we're in this highly emotional, reactive, panicky, anxious state, the whole thing is contagious. And I think we have way less capacity to slow down and reflect. We're much deeper into our own blind spots. So for instance, if we're participating in something and we're making the problem worse, well, we're doing that with other people and they are certainly not behaving well either. So we're gonna be so keyed into what they're doing wrong. And we're not wrong about that, but the more escalated the battle is, The more we'll see that to the exclusion of our own participation. And that's where things go really off the rails. And I think that's what's so scary right now, at a collective level, as you say, at the level of the entire group, the entire society. I mean, you can see it in a relationship, you can see it in the family. But lately, we're seeing and feeling it in an entire population at the same time. And it's uh, scary.
0: I know it's kind of crazy to watch these things that are typically thought of as like individual neurotic function or Mm -hmm. individual cognitive function. And actually, these things are global across all individuals in every culture. Every brain knows how to do this. Every brain figures out all of these little roads, blame being just one of them. What about minimization? That's one of the ones that's really grinding my gears recently.
1: Minimizing. It's a way of saying, I see that there's a problem, but it's not a big one, you know? I don't really drink that much, you know. I only drink at cocktail hour, you know. Or actually, I can go two or three weeks without drinking. Well, yeah, but then you binge, and what happens that night? Did you have a blackout? You know, what are the consequences? That kind of thing. But one way or another, there's usually something to point to that says, "Well, this thing that I'm uncomfortable about, this thing that's painful for me to acknowledge or uh, admit, it isn't really that bad. Everybody does it." That's where i put minimizing.
0: Right. It's almost like normalizing in in, Mm -hmm. in a certain way. And just to put a fine point on it, like what is being denied by these styles of denial? Like what is being denied, do you think?
1: It's usually something deeply painful. A lot of the language arose around people discovering they had a problem with drinking. Obviously, that's not the only thing. We may have an enormous problem with Facebook addiction or Twitter addiction or something like that, and and some of the experiences are very similar. But it's easiest to talk about in terms of drinking because that's the context in which the language arose. So to find that one's drinking has gone out of control, just as this example, that's very painful because think of all the good things associated with the drinking. If you're shy at all. Drinking is very disinhibiting, and that can be very helpful. There's that wonderful sense of camaraderie, like the old Cheers sitcom with that great theme song, that sense of belonging and people know your name. I mean, something like drinking, or it might be other substances as well, but that's often associated with rich social experience and feeling a part of transcending the worries of the daily world and moving into a zone with other people that feels connected and free and liberated and all that kind of thing. Many, many good things associated with it. So to find that you're in a position where if you keep enjoying those things, you're liable to get yourself into deeper and deeper trouble, that it's actually wreaking havoc in various ways. That's a very painful thing to start to grapple with. It hurts.
0: Wow, that's a very powerful thing to remember. I was getting so frustrated with my dad, the various ways that his denial mechanism works. Mm-hmm. Minimization is one of them. The other one is a lot of intellectualization, just detaching from the emotional pain. I basically kind of had to say to him, not had to, but chose to say to him, like, when you push that out of your mind, that just kicks the pain down to me. Like, it doesn't actually get rid of the pain. Mm -hmm. It just makes me have to face it. So Mm -hmm. when you just say, oh, yeah, those Republicans are such homophobic assholes. Oh, well, I'll keep voting for them. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Like, that keeps putting people in power who make me suffer and my people suffer. Mm -hmm. And the denial of my pain, I think, is painful. I I, I think my pain is painful to him. I think he loves me that much. Mm -hmm. And I also think seeing himself as hurtful when he's actually a registered healer and like a tempter of good and really an excellent father it like creates like a cognitive dissonance that's very painful and all of this is working at the speed of neurology right so like nanoseconds right so we end up in these like debates where he just will not hear that something is harmful and has incredible strategy to deny the harm And I was getting so frustrated. I was trying to breathe, but I could have used a little support, to be honest. Mm -hmm. It got a little tense.
1: Well, what you're focusing on as you try and gather yourself after this incredibly uh, painful emotional experience with him, what you're focusing on is the way he rationalizes. And that's probably the word I would use for the intellectualization you're talking about, although intellectualization may be a particular talent of his I mean, he may have a particularly intellectual way of doing this thing. But in terms of how he rationalizes, I mean, does it make more sense for you to talk about it in terms of his rational, his the way he rationalizes his vote or the way he rationalizes you not needing to be in pain or something like that? I mean, it probably happens in both areas. But this yeah. one is one more important than the other?
0: He rationalizes his own vote, certainly. Because mm-hmm. he'll say, like, I don't like this guy. I wish he didn't do a lot of the things that he does, mm-hmm. but he does some things good. And I hear that you're telling me that he, that there's some harm being done, but I have sort of deprioritized that as unimportant. I don't know. I'm hemming and hawing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like he, like he just not, I, I guess the part that gave me compassion was I was thinking of like just men of that generation who grew up with very different, allowances around how they accessed their emotional life Mm -hmm. their limbic system half Mm -hmm. of their brain Mm -hmm. and their bodies wired over time through a lot of disconnect Mm -hmm. and I really just think actually he's just not wired to sort of integrate that information so he's very fragmented in that way Mm -hmm. He, he can have thoughts and feelings and beliefs that all line up a certain way but then his behaviors can be totally different um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just, just has like a lot of frag of that fr- sort of disintegrated thing in therapy today. We would look to try to help people integrate. That's part of health that mm-hmm. we see today, mm-hmm. the more people feel connected to their values and align up their behaviors with their values and their thoughts and their feelings and their needs, right? As long as people feel more integrated that tends to lead to esteem and the feeling of integrity, the feeling of being integrated. Mm-hmm. Talking with my dad, I'm just aware that generationally he just didn't have the same support and access that I had in my generation. But the styles of denial that I come up against are just like...
1: Yeah, you, you, you are up against something very powerful there. I mean, maybe because his intellect is very powerful and he feels more comfortable there, he can say, well, let's look at this in a dispassionate way. You're concerned about these things Trump does, but he also does these things. So on balance, the math on that isn't that bad. He'll, as if it's an entirely numeric or uh, intellectual evaluation that's being made. And you're saying at some level, but dad, look how it feels to be me. Or imagine how it feels to be the people who don't feel safe with him the way you feel safe with him. And that sense for you that he doesn't somehow resonate, he doesn't quite hear what you're saying, or at least he doesn't respond to it in an emotional way, that's hard.
0: It's hard. And I wonder about it, like this is not true of all Trump voters. I don't even know if it's true of my dad, but Mm -hmm. it seems like one of the striations between us is that somehow it's maybe like on his shoulders perhaps, very easy to see all that's going on around me. And somehow from his perspective, he's simply just not quite able to take in that extra slice of life that goes on around him. He sort of has a little more self-centered view of Mm -hmm. the voting, like how it feeds into the individualism and all of that. But ultimately it feels like if you could take a breath and just take in a little bit more than you usually take in, if you mm-hmm. could just see one layer beyond just your ego
1: mm-hmm.
0: and your experience, right? That change in consciousness does help you build empathy and that empathy does help you orient toward what's good for people. Mm-hmm. But without that, I don't know, I, maybe I'm wrong. I just, it, it was frustrating to, to sort of be like, I love this man so much. I know mm-hmm. he loves me, mm-hmm. But the betrayal that I feel (laughs) to say to my face that you love me and then empower people who make my life suffer is hard to reconcile. It's just hard to reconcile. And I think what's triggering is like when we were kids, my dad put my mom in charge of the household, right? Like he went to Mm -hmm. work Mm -hmm. and he left a crazy person who had no ability to govern, who had no ability to mother, and was beyond her depth. And she was so destructive and rageful and abusive and traumatizing, so disorganized, so chaotic, so toxic, so dysfunctional. It was so bad. And Aaron and I, my brother, we both had to like pay that price because he just Mm -hmm. like went to work and did his thing, right? And left a crazy person in charge. I don't begrudge him that generally. Like generally I don't, feel angry about that because I feel like I, I am who I am today. Those are my experiences. Those experiences made me who I am today. And frankly, I'm a more compassionate healer today because of my own wounding. Like it's I feel very at peace with that layer. The hard part for me is the lack of consciousness around like, but you're going to do it again like mm-hmm. not just that we all survived it last time, but now you're going to put this mentally ill parent in charge of the family again. Mm-hmm. It's okay mm-hmm. that you voted for him last time, but you're going to do it again. There's something about the repetitive pattern, the like compulsion to make this harmful, dangerous decision and behavior. Mm-hmm. right. That one is, that's where I, I get a little stuck.
1: Well, it, it, it's not just you it's something very dark. And I think it's something very dark in all of us, frankly. I mean, let's look at the light side of this. And we're calling it denial because we're calling this out as a problem. But the capacity to compartmentalize is a kind of denial. That's a denial in the service of life. If you have to go onto the battlefield or do something scary, um, to be feeling all of your fear or terror or sadness or grief or whatever it might be at that Point would be hugely problematical. So, for your dad to be able to go off in the morning and compartmentalize what was unresolved for him at home with his wife, with his kids, all that kind of thing, and go out and be a doctor in the world, then that capacity to compartmentalize is essential, not just to him, but the people he's helping. If someone's, I, yeah your dad is not specifically a brain surgeon but i often think of it that way if you had someone like me trying to do brain surgery i'd faint at, at the first cut you know no, i would be of, i would be of no use to that patient whatsoever my emotional sensitivity my capacity to feel my way into what it's like to be the patient or one of the nurses or or any of that would be a huge impediment because i couldn't compartmentalize adequately. Yeah. exactly so he's great at all of that And it has enabled him to go out and do all kinds of good things in the world. Uh, But as you say, to the degree that that meant compartmentalizing and putting aside entirely all of this emotional anguish that was going on at home, hers, yours, all of that, and that you didn't have a sense or don't have a sense of him circling back to that then or now and saying, okay, what's been going on? to sort of put his tools down, come in, and move into that much more, probably to him, very scary, less defined world of emotion, where things can flood you. You can be overwhelmed. You can dissolve into tears. You can be absolutely at your wit's end. You can be terrified uh, at, to the point where you freeze and don't know what to do. It is pretty scary stuff. And if his strengths are in that other area, that area of intellect And being able to say well let's look at this on balance let's make a list of pros and cons he's comfortable there but to the extent that it to use your word it doesn't have any integration it's not in conversation with well what is the emotional impact of that decision or how do you feel about it how might they feel about it well then you get into this very scary realm well it doesn't matter if the trains are going to auschwitz as long as they get there on time I'm not suggesting that he's a Nazi. I'm saying the absolute extreme, most scary version of intellectual would be somehow losing track of the emotional component.
0: Right. We talked with this, uh, with some of the other guests, about the way in which intellectualization, mm-hmm. being detached from body, mm-hmm. is the exact way atrocity gets carried out. That it is through that exact mechanism that so much harm has been done. And there's such a reckoning around, you know, disembodied, detached, really rational, reasonable people holding on to power, oppressing others, co-signing on violence and Mm -hmm. tyranny and all that sort of thing. I wanted to ask you about all the Mm goings-ons and how we're all dealing. Mm -hmm. So. I don't know, I'll just list some of the things, right? We're living in COVID times and there's an election. The election seems to have a lot of high stakes. The globe seems to be warming and there's some disagreement about what the timer is. But I I wonder where you are with that and where your sense of anxiety is and how you're just kind of coping through what feels like a very historic, powerful, heavy time.
1: Great question. I know when this first began, the uh, COVID part, I mean, and there was suddenly this clarity, particularly for people my age, because I'm older, I'm in my late 60s. So we were the first cohort (laughs) to be told by Governor Newsom, get out of the office, get home, stay home. We don't want you people clogging up the emergency rooms in a few weeks, just lock down now. And as it happened, it was pretty much the same marching orders for everybody within a week or two. But initially, I actually remember valuing the kind of clarity of that, you know, There was at least a sense of leadership, a sense of consciousness at the top. This is what we need you to do, you know, in order to forestall disaster of various kinds. And of course, I understood the the reasoning behind it, which always helps. But in a way, it was a relief to have that simple directive. And then I'll be honest, because I'm fairly introverted anyway, there was something about being ordered home. And again, as I said, my kids are grown. So uh, I immediately thought, Wow, what would it be like to have kids during this? Much harder, Ugh. but I don't. So the house isn't big, but it's big enough for this. You know, there's a big tree. There's a place to sit under the tree, and then above and beyond that. Although it was an adjustment, I'm enough of a tech geek that the whole phenomenon of Zoom and learning to do psychotherapy with clients over the platform of Zoom was kind of cool. You know. It does basically work. I mean, we can see one another, we can hear one another. It's lovely to be in sweatpants, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. But on a deeper <laughs> level, all joking aside, there was initially this quality of a pause, of a slow down or a slow write down. Things got quieter out there. And there was a kind of honeymoon stage of it. I think I was aware at the time, this is probably the honeymoon, but initially there was this timeout. And this almost invitation to taking it slower and really not feeling as if you had to explain why you weren't going out, why you weren't doing all of this, all that kind of thing. As much as it was scary too, because what was going to happen to the supply chain and what what about the grocery stores and what people are going to get sick out there and all the, of course, the mind goes a million different places. But subjectively, it felt like a relief. So there have been aspects of it that have been great. And then of course, as it has worn on, and as the uh, uncertainties have gotten darker, like how many people have to actually really get sick, really suffer, really be without income, all that kind of thing. Is this not going to become the priority in the way that I would have assumed was necessary? Yeah. Then we go through these different stages. I don't think it's linear, but I think you're absolutely right. There's something really alarming about it. I mean, if failures and dangers this grave don't move the needle politically or in terms of our leadership, the thought of it is still unmanageable to me. And I actually think there will ultimately be this corrective that we've always been used to having of at least there will be an election. And that's the purpose of elections is to correct course as a country. Everything hinges on the election doing what it's supposed to do, which is at least bring some quality of correction to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is what it's designed for. That's what we've always been taught. And sure, the fact that we don't know whether this rickety election mechanism, whether these institutions of government will hold up under the assault that's coming at them, we don't know that. But there's still a pretty good chance that they will hold enough that mm-hmm. we can get some traction, but I'm with you. It's kind of like your whether it's in the micro of your uh, frustrating conversations with your dad or, or in this larger experiment we're in technologically, politically, all this guy, guy, kind of stuff. Will we be able to take these problems seriously enough? Will we be able to feel them, emotionally feel them in our bodies enough that we can actually mobilize and change course? We don't know for sure.
0: My family in New Orleans has a saying, if God is willing in the creek, don't rise. Then we'll see where we're at. Or the creek will rise and we'll see that. Either way, I can't believe we're living through these times and I feel so blessed to have you in my life.
1: It's a privilege, not just this conversation, but all the many conversations we have had through the years and we'll continue to do so, God willing, and the creek don't rise.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Gary, for taking the time to talk. You're a treasure. I hope you all come back for the next installment of Polypsych 101, where I'll be honing all the EQ I can possibly summon toward having a more healing conversation with my dad. Hope you'll join us next time for a little family therapy on a national podcast. Cheers.